Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, uh, we've got the folks from OWC here. They're going to be talking about some new additions to Jellyfish shared storage lineup, as well as talking about how to create capture and collaborate inside of the uh, OWC ecosystem. Uh, it's going to be a great uh, opportunity to ask some real experts about a lot of storage, uh, your storage questions. So if you've got storage questions, go ahead and throw those into the second hour. And um, and uh, if you've got regular questions, go ahead and throw those into the first hour into Makana. If you're not in Makana, you're just watching this on YouTube, minding your own business, uh, you can ask, you can use this QR code or just go to off askofficehours.global. Uh, you can just type that in, put your question in, and then we'll We'll feed those into the system. So, um, so again, uh, just go to askofficehours.global, and you can ask your question there. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Andy Carluccio this morning from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Andy says, in Mac OS Sonoma, it seems you cannot disable the new gesture reactions for virtual cameras through OBS since the OS doesn't detect them in the menu. Workaround for Zoom was to switch to a USB camera, disable, and then go back to a virtual camera. Is there a better way? Go ahead, Jason. I've looked and looked. I cannot find a way to do it system-wide yet. I am sure that they're going to change that. Yeah, it seems like a real, it's like, hey, look at this. And then they just kind of, it's everywhere and you can't stop it. It's a very, it's one of the least Apple-y things to do. I mean, the, adding the reactions is a lot of fun, but it just seems like they just powered these reactions onto us in a way that I, I don't think, I hope they don't do again. Like it's it's not it's surprising a lot of people in places they don't want to be surprised in and 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 it's not and we're having a hard time figuring out how to turn it off everywhere. Go ahead, Chris. It's a little bit like when they gave away that U2 album and they shoved it down everybody's iTunes throat. You know, you'd think they would learn. Maybe they're just trying to. Maybe they want to make a splash. Like, hey, look what we're doing, and then they'll back off on a point release or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 pretty frustrating. So, but I think that that the workaround that Andy outlined is probably the workaround right now. Next question: Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Tallahassee, Florida, is up next. Why did Apple stop grounding its chargers? When I'm on a Clearcom, multiple states, multiple menus, and I use my computer, I am introducing a lot of hum into the comms. If I touch the case at all, it happens. Would it be mitigated if the Mac had a ground? I go ahead, Courtney. Uh, possibly, but a lot of times lifting the ground uh, is uh, a way of solving that. One way to find out if that's the case, if uh, if your Mac is a, a laptop, is to pull the power plug and see if the hum goes away. And that means that the hum is coming in through the power adapter. Uh, so it could be just a noisy power adapter. I'm not sure when they stopped grounding their chargers. Um, it could be when they went to uh, metal encased iMacs and uh, metal cased laptops because uh, they didn't want to, you know, create another path to ground that could be dangerous uh, if you plug it into something that is not grounded and has a AC fault, you know, a path to ground could electrocute you. So Good. if you're not grounded, you don't have a path to ground. Go, Jason. As far as I know, they've never grounded the mini. As far as laptops are concerned, I think this is actually a body ground loop. If you if touching it is messing with it, so um, I I don't know other than to tell you, 
yeah, some of them have never been grounded. So the here's a here's a funny little thing about about those chargers. They they do have a ground available. It's not used when you use just the little plug that goes in. So um, so if you pull that plug out. You're going to notice that it's a standard figure eight, and then it's got this little metal piece that pops up that that, that piece slides onto. That's a ground. You know, so so basically um, what you need to do there is if you use the cable, so if there's a cord that usually comes with your power supply, that cable is grounded. The the little box that you have, um, the little the, the one that if you don't have the, the, the long cable, the one that you're going to have there is ungrounded. I think it's just literally a design space thing that they made a decision there. The only place that you don't see that is if you're in the UK and you plug in their version of that, the really the big three-prong one. It's three prongs. <laughs> Same thing in South Africa, I believe. So so if it's too big for them to design a way around it, they just go ahead and leave it in. But if you but again, if you're using the power cable to your the the power cable that came with your power supply. Um, it will be grounded, and if you use it, and I'm very sensitive to this because I've had the same problem that that you're talking. Well, similar problem in Africa um, the, or anywhere that you have 240 volts um, or 220. When you put your hands on it, it'll feel like your hands are floating on the top of the of the laptop if it's not grounded because it's it's a lot of voltage <laughs> that's sitting there. And I noticed that it was slowly taking the skin off of my hands. So so anyway, so I. Uh, so I, I, I learned a lot about how the grounds work, specifically with the Max. But it's been that way for 20 years. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I, I, to me, I almost threw away all of those little slip-on connector plugs that have two prongs that flip out for my Max, and I've gone with the long cords. The cords are extremely long. They're like six feet long. So that plus the cord on the other end of the power supply makes for a really long and uncomfortable thing. But I agree with Alex. It is grounded, so I'd go with that first. And that cord is a standard power cord other than that little end. So if it accidentally got cut in half or cut by a quarter and then another one got put on the end, it would still work. Go ahead, Serge. Just to show everything uh, that you talked about, this is the, the power adapter with the small plug that you can remove and he'll use the power cord that will have a ground. There you go. Next question. Bodhi Brazil in San Francisco asks this, after three years of loving my ATEM minis, I'm ready to upgrade to eight inputs and super sources. I, am I safe to buy an extreme ISO right now or will, be, or will Blackmagic be coming out with an updated version two anytime soon? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Hey, Brody. Uh, Grant sent me a, a postcard last week with the updated schedule of all the product releases. No, we don't know. We don't know anything. Product. Okay, okay. <laughs> you don't have to be mean about it. I go ahead, go ahead, Jason. Brody, buddy, you're never safe. Sorry. Many of us have more than one ATEM. I go ahead, Serge. I think the bigger decision is to think about leaving the HDMI to go SDI. Because, Alex, I think you are a big proponent of uh, having SDI set up instead of uh, HDMI. I have the XTM Extreme with the HDMI. And it's a mess to have all these HDMI cables, but I will not change right now. Yeah, I, I, to, to clarify, I think that um, as my desktop solution, I think that the HDMI works really well. As a production solution, the SDI is the way to go. I mean, if, if I was going to use this for work um, and not my home desk, I would. I, I have an HDMI version as well, and that's what we use for some, produ some small productions. 
Um, I I would not use an HDMI one in production. I will, but but it's perfect for my desk because I just have lots of little HDMI things to plug into it. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I, I don't smell an update coming because their last update was the SDI versions, which answered a lot of people's you know complaints about not having SDI inputs. So they came up with that already. Uh, the only thing now that people are complaining about is they want a a USB video input, you know, so you could use uh, webcams uh, into it. That might be nice. But other than that, I'm not sure what kind of upgrades you would do to it. It's uh, oh, been been, been working pretty oh, oh, well. We haven't gone down Alex's list. Yes, yeah, so I have a long I've been thinking about it because I think we should do a second hour of how, how we would fix the ATEM Mini. Anyway, so because we're going to have a bunch of internal discussions in November because we're making a big change in our where our production is. And, but the uh, so I was thinking about internal discussions, and one of them was like, so, I mean, getting – um, uh, for me, a couple things. One is getting XLR, you know, mini XLR at least inputs. So we have balanced inputs into it. Um, there's, you know, yeah, there's, I can make a long list. Uh, getting rid of most of the buttons on the front and just put buttons in that we would like and make them all programmable. <laughs> like, you know, like that would be, like that would be earth shattering. Like the, the, there are so many buttons that, I've never actually used. In fact, I would say I haven't used on this on my thing. I haven't used at least eighty percent of the buttons that are on the front. So, well, some so people think, don't want to. You have to launch a software app in order to change settings on the thing. You know, yeah, that's where the buttons are for. I just have. I ask people like, do do you use the ones that all these like um, audio follows video and 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 all the audio stuff and the black and and, and they're like. No, I just open up the app for that. <laughs> like they, some people don't want to, but th that's I not do the way use people the, use these. You use the buttons? Yeah, for the audio. Because okay. I have so okay, many inputs. I'm, I made wrong. Because <laughs> I just am like, who uses these? Surge. Surge uses them. So I'm I'm now I there there is we'll keep them. We'll keep the buttons for you, Surge, because it's because it's uh you're you're you've proven that that somebody actually uses them. Go ahead, Chris. I think this is a good uh, interesting discussion because like many things, there are um, individuals or groups of people that use a thing a certain way. And quite often we have no idea the way the rest of the people do. So it's it's quite likely that there are people that do lean heavily on the buttons. I will also say that for anything for a live, um, live use, I think programmable buttons are super dangerous because if you sit down to work on somebody's piece of gear and they've like hot rotted their thing and customized all the functionality of the buttons, it could be a really uh, awkward day. So maybe the, the, the logic of not having programmable buttons makes sense. Although I will admit, give me a quarter of the buttons and let me program them is the way I would want it. But that's just me. Well, I think that the thing is, is that I, I guess I feel like these are kind of personal edit machines. <laughs> like these little, these little, these little switchers are kind of the, and you can program. I mean, I guess it's just a matter of knowing when the, that these things have closed. Like just being able to deliver it. Like you don't even have to customize it in, a, in the ATEM software. Just give us active feedback that, that you push the button so that, um, so that other software like Mix Effect Pro can take that customization and do whatever it wants with it. You know, like it's, it's let it, let us just just give us the feedback loop that we need and then we will customize the buttons and then you don't have to do it inside your software uh next question next question comes to us from uh kyle hammond in chicago illinois is there an app or website that will play a constant 24 7 slideshow using google photos the idea being that i can change photos and possibly audio without rebuilding the slideshow i uh, go ahead, jason 
Yeah, this is one of the core things that Chromecast will, will, will just straight up do for you. So remember the Chromecast? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and you know we've done this in the past with um, there's slideshow features inside of um, photos on the Mac. And we just change the slides, and it just slowly works through those slides. And it depends on whether you now we've ne we've let it just be autom not autom I mean let it be randomized, <laughs> so it just keeps on it'll go through all the slides over time, um, and that's been pretty easy for some shows. Go ahead, Chris. Can't hear you. Years ago, I was doing a. I did a show where I was getting updated photos from a photographer, but I had to have a constant slideshow going on, on, on the screens. And I used nothing but things inside the OS. Like I was using, I was using like the, um, the desktop slideshow. And then I was networking into that computer and just adding more photos into the folder that it was accessing. It was, I did it mostly just for fun, but it actually worked quite well. Yeah. We used to use, um, we used to use Quartz Composer for some of this stuff where we would, we would actually, um, uh, with Quartz, we would, we would just have it looking at a folder and just slowly working through it, you know, and just, and just showing those. But you know, Quartz Composer, it was one of those classic apps that you could do so many things with, with, you know, low code, uh, never really, never really went anywhere, but we used it a lot for, for a lot of things. Next question. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Roscoe says, a high school student who is unable to attend football games for health reasons would like to announce on a game's remote video stream with two others in the booth. How might this be accomplished using Zoom and or vMix call? Thank you. Well, I don't know how to do it with vMix call, but with Zoom, you would send them the, the game. Like, it's literally sending them a game, have them talk into it. And then on the far end, I mean, you would need some way to grab an ISO of them. So I would probably use Zoom ISO to grab that ISO because you're in the same. Now you could give them two different, what we've done in some, in some cases is you give them two different uh, Zoom rooms um, that or two different Zoom connections on two different computers. That might be a little complicated. Another way to think about doing it is Unity. So you can send them a, uh, a Zoom and have them put a, a headphone in and have them just talk into Unity, and on your end, you're pulling Unity out and plugging it into your into your broadcast. That's probably the the simpler way to do that. Go ahead, Chris. The only thing I would think about is um, latency being a sporting event. Um, I don't know, I don't know where it would fall apart. But if he's getting either any audio or any video from the site too late, his comments may not makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the round trip of there is going to be about 300 milliseconds. So about a third of a second, I think that the human, uh, I mean, you know, I think for football, it would work basketball, it would be harder. Like if there's a much of a delay, we've seen that, you know, but but under a second, he's still thinking about what he's saying. You know, like it's, what's interesting is, is that I've noticed in some broadcast, the broadcast is definitely off by a second, the, the commentation, you know, the commentating from what I've seen, like they're, they're in the future somewhere because they're they're calling the play just before it happened <laughs> like it's just like it's like it's not so much that you think that there's a conspiracy but enough that you think that there's something that's been shifted there so uh next question next one comes to us from tony mobley and tony asks why is the thunderbolt 4 cable so much high priced what makes it so special uh serge i think uh we were discussing in the chat about it I think it's two things. It's Apple, sure, but it's the quality that they put in it. We see Ars Technica did the X-ray of the uh, the cable. 
and they show us everything that was inside, the quality of it. So probably I will buy one of these cables just to make sure that I have it in case of I want to transfer between two Macs to migrate everything. It's going to be a lot faster and it's going to be the best cable have we'll have for that kind of task. Go ahead, Bill. It is pricey, but the technology, I think, is worth it. This is not the Apple one. This is a standard button. But inside this plug, Serge showed you part of what Ars Technica did as their look at it. But this is also that same connector inside the tiny piece of that. There is a ton of technology and traces. And I read a story. They were comparing uh, a lot of the less expensive Thunderbolt cables use just a they kind of... Um, parallel the wires coming to the tip so but the apple cable keeps them entirely separate so there's like 24 little tiny mini traces coming to those pins as opposed to the 12 i think it is standard so there's a lot of higher level technology in the apple one that just doesn't get reflected in the less expensive cables that's what i understand go ahead, john this is actually showing this is this is an apple thunderbolt 4 but but throw all your Thunderbolt 4 away because Thunderbolt 5 is soon to hit the market. Next question. Next question comes to us from Evan Troxell in Talent, Oregon. If you were going to record a four-person, in-person audio conversation and capture an accompanied video, how would you do it? I have an ATEM Mini ISO that can technically do it, but it's complicated uh, as a setup. Thoughts on simplifying and keeping costs within reason? Alex? Yeah, Evan, I'd like to know uh, how many cameras we're talking about because you're saying with an accompany video, so I don't know, is that one camera are we doing? I have to assume it's a multi-cam thing because you already have an A10 mini switcher that can accept multiple camera inputs. I'm not sure how much more streamlined you can go. I mean, you could go with the Insta360 link cameras and hook them up to a computer and then use something like Mimo Live, which does the ISO recordings, if you just don't want to haul around a camera switcher with you. So that's one way to do it. But uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about your setup. Yeah, the, the one thing that I'll say for these roundtables that, that I prefer personally is to put them in a roundtable. Uh, and if you go back to the Pixelcore um, YouTube page and you look at some of the Final Cut, you, if you search for the Final Cut virtual user group, you'll see us putting people into circles. When it was suggested that we do this, I thought it was crazy. I was like, people should all be at a table and everything else. Um, once we started doing it, we couldn't go back. And so we, we really built that out and, and we, it's, it's just a much nicer experience for the participants that are in the, in the discussion and it looks a lot nicer. So what we do is we have, um, you know, if you think about a table, you know, we'll have a table here. Now four is a little harder. Three and five is much easier because you can shoot gaps. Um, but you, you have, you know, you might have the, um, you know, the moderator here, and then you kind of have a, um, you kind of figure out where you want to put the other three that are going to be talking to them. And then what you're looking for is you, you are taking your cameras and actually shooting like this. And you're shooting over the shoulder and then back this way. And it, it, it's, it's more cameras, but what it does do is it, they can just be locked off for the most part. If you have PTZs, you can make fine adjustments or you can have one person kind of making adjustments as they move around. Um, but that this makes it much nicer. And then what we've done in the past is we put, um, we get a big China ball. And now we've bought bigger ones. I mean, the Air Stars are the ones that we use for our show. But we started, the very first ones we did were with a China ball. It's about a, it's about a three-foot China ball. And we put these really powerful LEDs in the center of them. And so you have this China ball here. And that's pretty much the only, 
you can light their hair. Yeah, there you go. You can see there's a version of that, and that's with a Airstar. Um, but that uh, what Chris is showing there um, is uh, what um, if we cut to Chris there. Um, the uh, yeah, so that is what we've done in the past, and that's with obviously with uh, six people, and um, uh, the yeah, you can kind of see that wide shot as a participant in the conversation. It's very comfortable. It's like sitting around a table as a and for from a camera position and, and from a show i thought it worked really really well um you feel like you're just at a table with them and it's kind of big soft lighting and it's worked um i i don't know i we we did it a bunch of times and started to refine it we do like to do it with odd numbers of people better than even numbers but um it's not the end of the world go ahead courtney well i kind of disagree i think uh you're you're adding a lot of problems when you put everyone in the round i i would go for a semi-circular half around and put two and two on on a uh, 180 degree table, you know, a flat table, kind of like they do on uh, Twit, uh, so that the people can are turned just enough so that they can see each other and talk to each other directly. And you can get a wide shot that has all four people in it without looking at the back of their heads. The other thing to consider is if you're shooting in the round, you got to hide the cameras and you have to have 360 degrees of background which, you know, if you're in a studio, great, you can put up blacks all the way around them or something or some kind of background behind everybody. But then you got to light it if it's not black. And, you know, it's it's a lot more problems to shoot in 360 degrees than it is to shoot at 180 it's, degrees. It's more problems. It's just not as good for the, the viewer or the speakers. <laughs> like, so, so it, from a, you're, you're totally right. From a technical perspective, it's way easier to do it than what you're talking, saying. You can from still a, get close-ups at a, at a 180-degree half yeah, round you get a, uh, you and get a, a wide of, shot. You get a lot and of profiles. Get, you get a lot of profiles. profiles which yeah, makes sense profiles. because it gives you a sense of direction, <laughs> screen direction. I hate, I and hate you're profiles. not constantly crossing screen direction and... Fenwick is shaking his head. No, no, I, I, as a, I mean, like to me, the, uh, most of my design work around conversations is to see the far corner of the far eye. Like I just, you know, everything, everything around what we build is how can I see the far corner of the far eye where we put the cameras? If I can't see that, I feel like I failed, you know, and, and I, um, cause I just feel like it, it doesn't feel like people are talking to you. And as a user, you know, uh, as a viewer, I just much rather see that. And I and and it's and I think that the long table is technically um, technically easier, but I don't think it's a better viewer experience. And it's definitely as a speaker who does this a lot, it's definitely not a good good experience for me. <laughs> like like I hate it. Like I just hate this crooking down and looking at someone down some down somewhere else or looking over. I uh, I it's part of why I don't go to Twit. Like I don't like I don't like sitting in that format. Um, go ahead, uh, guy. Yeah, he asks how would how would I do it? Uh, I would grab this little guy right here. This is the Zoom F6. I would mic up each person, so that's uh, four of the six inputs. I would use time code, and depending on the cameras that you have, I would jam all the cameras, and make this the master, and then I would have four ISOs uh, in post. I'm assuming that's what you want to do. Is you want to edit this down, and you want to have isolated uh, for each person. Um, I probably wouldn't uh, do 32-bit. I'd watch the the app. The, this has a great app, the F6, F6 Control app, and I would watch my levels, and I would record in 48 kilohertz and sync it all up in post. Chris? To Courtney's comment, uh, Alex, what do you always say? It's easy to, television can be easy to make or easy to watch, but it can't be both. Uh, most of your comments, Courtney, were, well, it's easier if you don't have to do this. And it's, yeah, yeah, it is easier. I mean, I, I got my start in television on the Computer Chronicles show. I worked on it for 15 years. I directed it for a decade. 
from 86 to 2001, we saw all the stuff. And I didn't have the the clout to push for what Alex did on the roundtable thing. And, and having been on that show once, it, it, as a participant, the technology immediately just dissolves away. And you are just hanging out with your friends, talking about computer stuff. You really and just, it really just it, drops away. It goes, it is gone. Yeah. And working the way we shot Chronicles, which is like, you know, the godfather of all tech TV, everybody, everybody tried to do Chronicles for the last 40 years. Uh, it was a nightmare. It was a night. It, it, we got backs of heads and profiles and people looking up stage to look at the computer and like type into the C print. It was, it was, it was a nightmare. And when I started directing, I tried to flip some things and it ended up being a disaster. Find those episodes on YouTube. They're pretty funny. You can kick me about how dumb I was. Uh, but that the, Alex's little round table thing, it literally just disappears. It was it, beautiful. And I didn't have the clout to do it. I, I was told to do it by a partner. And, and, um, it, uh, and, uh, so I was, and I was, and I fought, I fought at kicking and screaming just to be, be clear. Like when we first, the first round we did, um, uh, we, I was like, this is a horrible idea. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to see the cameras. We can't protect everything. We can, all the things that Courtney said, I was like, I was like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. Like this is dumb. And I've, it was, it's the number one reason now when people want to do something crazy, I go, okay, well, we'll give we'll see what, like, like uh, here are the problems that I think are going to come up but I'm okay to be wrong. Like I, like, cause I was, cause it changed everything for me. Like once I saw it within 10 minutes of watching it, um, I was like, of just us cutting it. I was like, Oh, this is a much better show. Like it's much better to watch. And then, and then being in it as we built it for the final cut user group, I, it was much better to, to be in as well. Uh, quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Make sure to vote on those questions so that we know which ones you'd like us to cover. Uh, next, uh, you can go to office hours, uh, askofficehours.global to ask your questions. Uh, if you're in McConaughey, go ahead and vote those questions up and down. Next question. Andre Dolayan. Bolin comes up next. I screwed up the lip sync of an H.264 recording and have to fix it. What's the best and what's the easiest way to do so using Resolve for editing? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the only thing that you may have to do is, is re-encode it. But what you're going to do is take it into Resolve. You, you want to disconnect the, um, you want to detach the audio from the video and then you're going to slide that audio until it's um until it's in sync and you're, and you're going to have to look at it you, you know there's not any if you don't have anything there to to check it you just have to look at the lip lip sync and you know get good at i used to have to do this all the time <laughs> but you look what you're looking for are p's it's very hard to have a p um say a p without your mouth being in a very specific position people can mumble through a lot of other things but the P's are really hard. In fact, when we do tests, we have people go up there and just go Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. And that's how we test our, you know, um, uh, we have a longer thing that people read that's lots of P's. P's are uh, at least four times more accurate than that clapping thing people do on the stage. It's stupid. Anyway, so, um, so, the, uh, so you know, have them just do, do the P thing because the, the clapping thing is like I, we do that. It's mostly so that the stage people feel like we did that thing, you know, because it's, we, we just ignore it. We don't even look at it. Like we just wait, we just do, do the clapping thing and then we go to do, do the P tests and, and then we move on. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael. Alex, I like your mobile Zoom setup. How do you use your iPad in conjunction with your laptop and what laptop stand do you use? 
I use the, it's called the Brocoon or Brocoon, B-R-O-C-O-O-N um, stand. It, it folds into almost nothing and it pops up and, and, and knocks it out. I don't have, I don't think I have a picture I can grab really quickly of my setup, but, but the, um, uh, it's, it works great. Um, my iPad is just where I put Makana. So that's where I'm looking at the questions. So thanks. Next question. Next one comes to us from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Vincent says, have a single WD, Western Digital Red hard drive, built for NAS usage lying around. Can I add it to my desktop for a more basic storage, not network-attached storage? Or do they do something special to it that it wouldn't be a good idea to use it this way? Go ahead, Serge. The short answer is yes, you can use it using a case to transform that hard drive to a USB or Thunderbolt connection. I don't even know if Thunderbolt is existing for that. I will not recommend it because it's a first, it's a hard drive made for NAS. So the error correction is a little bit different than the normal hard drive. Second, it's probably because you want to do that because it's a big hard drive, but it's going to be slow as hell to copy from it and to it. And most importantly, is you will try to use it day in, day out, have a lot of data on it because it's a big drive. And after that, it's going to be difficult to transfer that data somewhere else to back up or to any, to do anything with it. So long term, I don't recommend it. I go, Jason. Yeah, NAS drives are, are designed to just be slow and last forever. My, my favorite thing about the Western Digital is that they claim a, a million hours of mean time between failures. And the conversion on that is 114 years, but they're only going to warranty it for three. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they are slower, like everyone said. The uh, the red is uh, usually 5400 uh, if it's a spinning drive, and uh, the red plus is 7200, so it's a little bit faster for data transfer. Uh, 200, and I think the red plus is 270, and the red is 180 megabytes per second. So if you're transferring a lot of files on and off, you're moving a lot of files on and off, it's going to be a lot slower. But for just archival, if you're just using it for archival storage every now and then and not uh, booting off of it or, you know, transferring a lot of files in and off, on and off of it on a daily basis, it should be fine. And it'll last a long time. It'll be quieter, too. Next question. Robert Green in Los Angeles is up next with this one. What are the reliable alternatives to satellite as a backup for a live show? A Makito X4 or other internet protocol encoders? Um, you know, so I guess the, the, the it depends on what your other connections are. So if you're only using a satellite, um, usually we're trying to find two reliable ways out. And the way we tend to stack them are, uh, you know, private fiber um, then satellite, then our internet, then usually some kind of bonded cellular. Um, and then after that, whatever we can get, <laughs> you, know, like the, you know, the Wi-Fi. Um, so, so there's, you know, as you go down those paths, as far as stacking those up. Um, so if we get something like a, a Lumen or, or um, Vivix or, or the Switch or those, those types of things, those are usually at the very top of what we're doing there. And then, um, then we do satellite. And then the cellular is usually below, is one of our backups. And we've had, We've used live use for a decade as a backup to the um, to the to the um, to what we're doing there. Um, so either the live use, and if we have an internet connection, oftentimes we might connect that internet connection into the live view because it'll just use it as another source. Remember that the live view also can um, uh, you can put extra modems on it um, to make that ha actually happen. So the Makito is a great solution. I mean, the Makito is a great um, it's it's a great box 
it's really expensive. Um, and, uh, and it's still connected to the, it's still connected to whatever internet connection you have. So um, it, the, the live view will, is going to let you have cellular connections that, that you can, that you can backhaul. So if you're losing internet, um, then you have some other place to go. Um, but it is good to think about, um, and, and also depends on where you are in the country as far as what, how important that's, that backup is. Uh, another one, by the way, is to use some, some version of air fiber. So these are microwave connections that we've used in the past. Um, TowerStream is one, is one company that, that provides those. It's gotten really expensive. They've kind of decided they don't like to do uh, one-day events, and so they charge you basically for a month uh, or more uh, worth of connection to do that, so it's like twenty grand to, to to. It's more expensive than the sat truck to get the sat to get the fiber the the air fibers. But if you find a hard place to put your internet, you can if you own your own air fibers, which we used to, you just put the put the antenna there and pay somebody to use their business connection or whatever. We've done that as a backup, not as not as the primary. Um, and so those are some of the things to think about. Paying attention to the rain. Another thing to think about there is making you know a good backup is a solid is also a very good primary. Um, if you're in a heavy rain environment, you may want to think about C band instead of um, instead of the um, uh, you know so so that's another you know K, you know the KU trucks is what is common. C bands are like tanks, and you bring them in, and they will go through just about any kind of weather that you may have. Where KU will break up, KA will break up in fog, KU will break up in hard rain. And C will not break up <laughs> if, if the person operating it knows how to how to run it. It's just different wavelengths that'll go through the clouds in different ways. So those are other things to think about. Like if I don't have a backup and I and it's a pri it's a really important event, I'm going to bring a C band truck in. They're about fifty percent more than the KUs. Yeah, go ahead, guy. Yeah, I was just curious, Alex. Where does the elemental fall into your your lineup there and and the switch? Um, well, we, well, we, the elemental is, we would consider that an encoder and we would, we, we don't usually attach the elementals to the satellite truck. We would just hook them to an internet connection. And so now if we have a really solid internet connection, if we're at a convention and we're paying for that and it's, you know, and we've got, um, you know, straight up technologies managing our connection and all the other things that we would expect to have there, then we'll use elementals on site to do the encode. And then the, then the satellite drops to a backup. Um, you know, for, you know, for that encode. Um, but it, 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 it's as long as we have that location truly managed. And then we bring those elementals on site. I mean, in the past, we brought actual elemental appliances, although most times now we bring the little links, you know, and we just put them, we just drop the links down because that's going to give us a really solid, it's actually, it, it, it's more flexible because the Zixi will expand and contract more effectively, um, you know, with that, with that process. So uh, next question. Next one comes from Roberto Barrow in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. How are the NAB plans coming along? Uh, we should have some more information for you next week. Uh, the, I know the team is planning it. We're, we've we've uh, shifted down. We're not going to be covering it in a broadcast. We're going to be covering it in after hours. And so um, this had to do with some funding things and so on and so forth. And so so we will um, uh, so we will be uh, there will be some small teams bringing in after after hours, and we should have that schedule up for you next week. Uh, next question. Next one comes from our friend Tony Mobley here on the panel of Noonan, Georgia. If you use some free TV and movies apps online, do you need a VPN? Which does the panel recommend? He's still having cable cutting issues. Go to Serge. My VPN of use for these kind of thing is ExpressVPN. I can use it on my Mac. I can use it on my PC, my iPhone, my Apple TV, about anywhere I think of. I can use ExpressVPN and it's 
especially fast for these kind of things. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't even think you use uh, need a VPN. You live in Georgia, Tony. Uh, you're not geofenced from most things unless you want to watch, you know, European uh, cricket or something. Uh, you know, I understand Serge's situation where a lot of things are geofenced. So Canada doesn't let those alien programs in. So he may have to use a VPN. But Tony, I would suggest getting something like a silicon dust. If you have good television reception, stick up an antenna. And uh, get something like uh, Silicon Dust Home Run TV. Uh, here's what it looks like. It's about $100, uh, 200 bucks on uh, Amazon. And it uh, takes basically the reception uh, from any of the channels. And in my neighborhood in L.A., I get 165 channels. I have a Tableau TV, which is similar to the Silicon Dust. I get 165 channels. It puts it on your network and it has an app that runs on all of the streaming devices. It runs on Apple TV. It has an app for, uh, you know, Roku, Fire Stick, you know, Google Drive, everything. So you can access all of your transmitted channels and it has a DVR for 49 bucks a month. You can subscribe to um, the uh, TV guide for not 49 bucks a month, 49 bucks a year. And it'll give you all the guides uh, for all the channels that you receive. And you can schedule recordings just like a regular DVR. You plug an external two terabyte drive into it. And you have a lot of recording at H.264. It looks great. And uh, that's what I have when I cut the cord. So I still have my DVR. I pick up all the local channels, which includes all the network channels, plus all the sub channels, which of which there are many these days. Uh, and I haven't missed the cable since I cut it. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Fluckinger in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Excuse me. Uh, have you any of you heard anything about Elgato's FaceCam Pro? And he's got the link there. And that's a QR code question. Yeah, the um, yeah, the FaceCam uh, Pro is, uh, we, I have one. Um, it is, uh, it's okay. It feels a little, it feels really big for the weight. Like it's, it's just, it feels like it's just full of air. Um, and, uh, as far as the webcam quality, uh, I would not, it's, it's probably equal to the Brio maybe. Um, it is not as good as the link or the, the Insta, Insta 360 link or the Obspot. So those are the two that we would consider better solutions at, at this moment. Um, next question. Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia is up next. What room lighting do you recommend for reviewing and color correcting photos on a MacBook Pro? Also, do you allow the MacBook to change the monitor brightness automatically or do you set it to a standard brightness? Definitely said it said I set it to a standard brightness to do this. Um, um, usually all the way up. <laughs> like if I'm if I'm doing this, um, I you know, for when I'm actually doing something where, that I care about color, I'm in a gray environment, so I I literally when I move into a new office, I just hand them a a gray a gray card and you know 18% gray and just say I just need the wall the walls to look like this, and and they just and and that's been what I do for the last 25 years. <laughs> I just walk in and, and just change the walls to that. Um, the uh, as far as you know lighting, it's important that the lighting is neutral. Um, so you want to have that, and and it's you know and and I think that we could probably bring in colorists to talk about how they. Um, how they look at that, but it's, it's gotta be known. And the main thing is, is you don't want it to change. Um, so, uh, don't, don't have a lighting that is going to be, if you're doing color correction, that lighting has to stay the same all the time because you have to settle into knowing what that actually means, um, in that, in that process. Um, next question. 
Jeff Bernstein in Easton, Maryland. We have an RTS Telex intercom system with two channels via six-pin connections around our auditorium. We also have a newer Dante intercom system. Is there a way to integrate these together, mainly just to listen to the RTS system via the Dante system? Um, yeah, I don't know exactly how. I haven't used RTS for a while, um, so I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. But I think actually, I know it sounds crazy, but I think that uh, Clearcom actually makes a a conversion box, and I think it's a seven. It's either a seven hundred one or a seven hundred three, I think. And it's a uh, um, anyway. I, I can't remember the numbers anymore, but it. I, I believe it will convert from the RTS to four wire. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for a a um, or a four wire to two wire is what you're looking for. Is that is that conversion? Um, and so the uh, and so you're if you do a search for that, you should see a converter that'll convert it back to. Um, you know, a standard XLR feed, and then you can feed that into something that'll that'll put it on the Dante network. Uh, next question. Next one comes from the QR code system from Andre Dolle in Berlin. Our panelists using camera protection covers on their phones. If not, how do you avoid scratching the lenses over time? Discuss the pros and cons. Go, Serge. First, I don't use these kind of protection because when they break, they are a mess to clean up. Secondly, these lenses are not glass, they are sapphire, so they don't scratch easily. Thirdly, I have Apple Care, so if needs, I will use my Apple Care. Good, Bill. And I just use the standard uh, Apple kind of store bought. And uh, on the newer phones, they have a pretty big uh, ridge around that brings the lay down kind of at least a few tiny fractions above the level of the lenses. I agree the lenses are super hard and they don't scratch, but I have had my lenses exposed for, I guess, eight, nine months. Not a single problem or anything even close to one. So they're pretty robust. You go ahead, Chris. I have a question on this topic, and, and I've never heard anybody discuss it. I spent a lot of time outdoors, you know, outdoor living, whatever. If you lay your phone down in the sun, just on a, you know, a table in the backyard, doesn't that lens act like a magnifying glass, like you're killing ants on your image sensor on your phone? Is that bad? I don't lay my phone out in the sun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't store like, it like, like, I don't, I don't, long. <laughs> Don't, don't I, get me I don't wrong. Know. It's not like, oh, where's my phone? Oh, I must have left it out in the backyard. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're sitting there and you put it down for a second while you're sipping a beverage with your friends. Yeah. And I think about it all the time. I like put it under my leg. I put it in my pocket. I, I, you know, put, you know, something on top of it. But, but again, Chris, if if the sensor is burned out, I will go to Apple with Apple my Apple Care. Care. <laughs> yeah, you're good. Gotcha. Good, good, right. Courtney. Yeah, I don't think the lenses are large enough to gather enough sunlight to fry the sensor. I just use a Samsung phone, and it has a case that uh, keeps the uh, keeps the sapphire covers uh, away from the surfaces that I lay it on. Yeah, I haven't had any um, uh, I haven't had any issues with with scratching for a long time. I've I've killed a lens by dropping my phone and it hit just happened to hit something just at the right moment where one of the three lenses was now not working anymore so, so anyway so so i've had that <laughs> but i haven't had a specific issue where i've scratched it at all like it's, it's been either perfect or broken next question don't carry next loose one. diamonds in your pocket you know that's a problem. yeah you know i have heard that if you carry loose diamonds in your pocket you might scratch your iphone um yeah, i was lady gaga was talking about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, <laughs> to change right. my behavior. Exactly. Ronnie Hofsoy, Tromso, Norway, says, can Mimo Live control mix effect directly using Mimo Live's remote control function, or do you need to use BitFocus or central control to do this? I do not know. I think that there is a... There's got to be a protocol that goes between Mimo Live and Mix Effect. I just haven't tried to tie that together. Um, try those two together. I'm not sure. Um, it feels like it should work, but I'm not 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 certain. Uh, next question. Robert Sababade in Poland says Elgato has released a new teleprompter called Prompter with a built-in monitor. Any comments? I'm really on the fence of trying to buy it to test it. It feels when I when I get close to the order button. I look at it and I go, wow, that screen is really small. Like it's just, and then I, and I go, oh, I don't know. You know, so the, the, the screen feels a little small to me um, for the, for the, the site kind of setup that I have because I'm pretty far away. It might be different for someone who was closer um, to, their, to their screen. I'm a solid three feet from my screen. And so I think that that could be, um, but I keep, on, I keep on going, oh, this could really work. It looks really efficient and it looks like it would work well. And then I'm like, but the screen is so small. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're a YouTuber, it, it would be just fine for you. You know, if you're sitting within three feet, as Alex said, of your monitor, uh, of your prompter, uh, it'll work great for you, I think. Uh, you have to remember, you know, you're going to have to have software that runs the, uh, if you don't have a prompter operator handy, that's going to allow you to control the speed of the uh, text as scrolling text. I'm not sure if they, they offer free software and always free software. Prompter software especially is pretty... Not very capable. I wouldn't use it in a professional situation, but for doing YouTube videos where you work off a of scripted, uh, you know, scripted stuff, it's fine. Or for using it for iMag, I mean, not iMag, but for Interatron, where you want to see a Zoom, another Zoom panelist or something you're talking to uh, in a two-way conversation, you know, you can put their image up there on that screen and that should help you maintain eye contact just fine. Uh, go ahead, Decris. Yeah, I told one of our producers to go ahead and buy one. I'm I'm anxious to see how it works, and I'm waiting to hear what she has to say. See, I'm there. We go. I'm I'm going to wait for Chris. I'm, You're I don't have to buy everything. somebody else to spend the money so you can reap the benefits of their research. One hundred percent. One thousand percent. What do you think that, we're here just, for, Fenwick? That <laughs> is the essence of office hours. That and hey, I do my fair share. I do my fair share. That's all I'm saying. You do. You do. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. I think the retail on something like $250. So if you're just looking for something for your desk, I, I think it would be maybe if you don't want to assemble something yourself. There are less expensive choices, although the display, uh, I'm using, what is it? Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the display, uh, not Feel World, but one of those that does the flip inside of that. This has all that stuff built in. So it's a great little turnkey solution if you want to spend 250 bucks to do prompting at your desk. I Go ahead, John. Jonas, Jonas just got his. He installed it with the GH. What's the box camera? GH one, and he really likes it. It's great. Um, so yeah, well, I. This is one of those things that are, I can I can see us all going. Oh, I don't know, I don't know, and then all of us will have one. So that's that's how this this, how this happens, and we'll use them while we're wearing our little glasses, and then we'll have the the teleprompter with the glasses and the thing. Uh, uh, next next question. Douglas Carmichael says Universal Music sued Anthropic for scraping song ly lyrics with their chatbot Claude. Do you think the music industry will fight against general AI like they did Napster or other disruptive technology? Good, Courtney. 
Oh, they'll try because they have lawyers on the payroll and they got to give them something to do. But now that uh, Google and uh, uh, any of the other big AI companies, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, with um, their search engine, their AI search engine is, is now going to defend you against copyright claims. Uh, I don't think they have a chance of being successful. The, the real danger is losing these battles. You know, everyone's still kind of like one toe in. Like what you're seeing right now with AI is one toe in. Like, let's just see how this goes. Let's see what this looks like because they're, everyone's afraid of being sued. If they stop being afraid of being sued, it'll be both feet in and then you're really going to see what AI can do. <laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the danger of, of all the lawsuits is that the, is that the certainty that that may, may create uh, will create a huge acceleration in the industry. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware. I'm attempting to connect a Countryman face mic to a Sony UTX B03 wireless transmitter. Full insertion of the 8th inch TRS male provides no audio. Pulling the plug slightly provides brief but unreliable sound. Ideas? Uh, Alex? Walt, I'm going to assume there's, uh, you know, that headset is working properly. So I haven't used that specific Sony body pack, but I was just looking at the manual. Uh, and like a lot of uh, wireless belt packs, uh, they usually will have a mic or line switch. So hopefully you've checked the obvious, but make sure it is set to mic because uh, these headsets do need uh, bias plug-in power. If it's set to line level, you're going to have a problem. Good, Bill. Also, it, in, when you're using a one-eighth inch as opposed to one of the more sophisticated, and I say that because um, there are a lot of different connectors that, that wireless mics and microphone for wireless transmitters can use. The eighth inch TRS, that's only three conductors. So you typically have a ground and left, right, or a ground and, and two other things. If you can pull it out a little bit and you get a signal, it means that the wiring schematic of that TRS plug and the wiring schematic of that socket for that plug are not in alignment. They haven't wired them the correct way. So you might be able to get by with an adapter that you could plug that mic into that will change which circuit hits where on the little, uh, there's a little bent piece of metal in there as it goes in, it clicks into place on the TRS plug and gives you the right connection. So it's really just a connector and a plug mismatch. That's pretty much why people go to TA4Fs and TA3Fs and the ones that are a little more stable and don't have this kind of wonky problem. Good, good guy. Yeah, so there is a difference in the way that the Sennheisers and some of the more standard 3.5 millimeters are wired. Sony is different for that particular transmitter. So you'll have to go to the uh, Countryman site and you can figure out because there's so there's a little screw in connector that goes into the uh, your set. And then you just pick your um, your Sony to Sony SON. And then there's the code, uh, depending on what color you want, you you can do uh, uh, you can figure out the the model number and they're about 60 bucks to replace that cable and then you'll have one for your your sennheiser and one for your your sony i have actually have have these mics and i have them wired for sony wired for electro and they're just i swap them all the time so it's different cables that's what you need good recording yeah what everyone else said the difference is 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 the plug-in power uh on a trs uh uh, eighth inch plug because uh the old style was to put the uh, positive on the ring on the of the trs ring and the new style is to superimpose it on the tip so that's why if you pull it out halfway it's going to work because then it'll be getting power 
from the ring connector instead of the tip connector. So that's probably what's going on here. You can fix it by, like was said, either wiring up an adapter or cutting off the plug and rewiring it for the correct uh, whatever uh, that uh, Sony BO3 expects. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. What do you think the aversion is to including a built-in menu system that doesn't require a computer to make changes to the ATEM line? Roland switchers have this, and it's convenient. Yeah, I, I, I guess it, it depends on the culture. I, I, I used to have Panasonic switchers and, you know, a, the HS50 and the HS400 and the HS450. And we, so we had a lot of Panasonic switchers and they all had built-in ones and I hated them. Like the, the scrolling up and down and the moving through the thing is just something that I hate. You know, so I, I have to admit that I, you know, after a decade of doing it, I never want to do it again. And so I, I immediately, if you give me some kind of app control that's going to let me change something, I'm always going to go to that because the interface is better and I can get to it faster. Um, so that's why I don't like using built-in menus. Um, and and it's, it, it is because I just find them to take a lot longer. Like I, even with, you know, my cameras, I, yesterday I had to make some changes and I just the scrolling through thing and, and then having to type something without a keyboard um, is not great. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't like the Panasonics. I don't like either with the four buttons at the bottom with change function every time you change menus. It's it's too confusing when you bury yourself, you know, four menus deep. That's why they put all those buttons on the ATEM Mini Extreme yeah. so you could access all that stuff without having to go into a menu, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I do find that the video out button works is really, there's a little array down the side, that one. Those buttons I use every day. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael says, popular forum Stack Overflow lays off 28% of its staff due to competition from chat GPT. Will generic uh, AI make Q&A sites obsolete? I think it's generative AI. I got no, generative AI. Um, make Q&A sites. It may definitely be one problem. Stack Overflow just probably had an overflow of personnel is what they had. Uh, they, uh, I don't think it's going to take uh, everyone's job. If your job can be taken by uh, chat GPT or, or an AI bot, then your job probably wasn't very valuable to begin with. So maybe look into something that uh, you have a better chance of being an expert at. I know there was a, there was something that uh, where one place I worked where they, they, they used to joke, it was kind of a joke that went around that said, if you're bored, if you're bored with your job and you don't think it makes any difference, don't worry, you won't be doing it for much longer. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it, you know, the, the, there's just so much competition building up and between AI and overseas and everything else. If you're living, at least in the United States, you have to consider that you're constantly developing yourself. And if you're not constantly developing yourself, you're probably not going to be able to keep up. Um, next question. Next question comes from Alexander Knight back in Port Coquitlam uh, in Canada. Is there a preferred double-sided tape that is strong enough to hold small accessories such as a portable USB hub to the underside of a desk? Go ahead, Chris. Alexander, this might be a little overkill, but um, you want 3M, <clears throat> 3M VHB tape. It stands for very high bond, super-duper strong. Um, it could be overkill, but... Um, I, I was turned on to this stuff last summer, and it's super handy to have around. A good guy. Yeah, Joe's sticky stuff. This stuff is awesome. You'll find it on sets all over the place. In L.A., Courtney's right by. Uh, film tools will have it. Uh, they call it snot tape a lot of the time. Uh, you just pull off a piece, and you, know, you can stick it wherever you want. 
You want a banana on the side of your camera? <laughs> go there you go. You got a banana on the side of your camera. Go search. I have the cheapest solution, I think. It's as seen on TV, Alienware, uh, not Alienware, but Alien Tape. I use it because I have it at home and it's working fine for me. The, for some reason, Alien Tape, it feels like certified, you know, uh, certified, um, not made on Earth. I think that you have made to have from real aliens. Made, made, no, not, you know, made with, by real aliens, not with real aliens. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the alien tape is uh, sticks to itself, but it won't stick to anything else. I think it's a silicone self uh, bonding, or, or a lot of times it's a rubber that will uh, vulcanize itself and stick to itself very strongly. What I use, if I have to stick, you have to be careful. If if the thing that you're sticking underneath your uh, desk is um, uh, heats up, it will eventually cause most. Uh, heat-sensitive adhesives to let go, with the exception of that uh, 3M adhesive that was mentioned first. Uh, I use the command strips. That way I can remove the stuff. It has that same kind of adhesive that's easily removable. You pull the tab, and it stretches out and removes itself cleanly from anything that you put it on, so you can put it on painted surfaces and things and remove it without removing the paint. Uh, and it has that kind of hard Velcro connection between the two pieces that you put on each side, so you can shove it up and snap it up in there. And I have a eight inch tablet that's stuck on with those things right now on my left and uh, works quite well. Doesn't heat up. Heat does not uh, cause us to release stretch. It causes that adhesive to release, but pulling it and stretching it does because it's kind of a rubber based. Go ahead, Chris. And I just wanted to say that the, the 3M VHB tape is easily removable with a blowtorch and a grinder. Comes off very easily. <laughs> and... <laughs> And Guy's banana demo is the best moment of Office Hours history of all time ever. And that needs to be clipped and saved. Thank you, Guy, for that. If you want to take, when you're done, a lot of these will be used on uh, sets to put like a picture frame or something up temporarily in somebody's uh, dwelling or a hotel room or something. The trick is to get it off. You need to rotate it. So you don't pull straight off. You rotate. So you rotate the banana and then you can pull it off. And then there's the stuff and then you can pull it off like that there you go demo complete rotate the banana yeah so that there we go so yeah so the um uh i i will say that the, i guess the only thing i'll say to that is that i do not like to tape my hard drives to things like so i i, I have a tendency to if i'm going to put something under my desk i'm going to build shelves underneath you can but get lots of these under shelves for lego use. right i do prefer lego I, I... lego Lego on on your on your laptop. You can get a you know just you actually. It's actually now that Chris says it, you can get you know a flat panel of Lego, and then just glue it to the bottom of your desk, and PHP. then you can attach the flat. You can then glue those things, and you can just attach drives to it. I I think that the, again, I, I I would be careful to use use it in that um, format, just because it's you're going to wish that you hadn't. I think I think that's that's where that's going to go. Uh, we're going to be talking to OWC here in just a, in just a minute um, uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, just a quick reminder, of course, we're going into the weekend and uh, over the weekend on Saturday it's just Q and A. But we are testing. You'll see us if you're watching live. You may notice the color is a little different. The sound might be a little bit different, um, and a lot of other things are, are kind of moving parts there. That's because we're testing. Uh, office hours in uh, 5.1 HDR 4K. So uh, Saturdays are our, kind of our test cycle for that. So we're doing general Q&A, um, but we are actually having um, 
uh, uh, but we are testing those, that, the, those video pipelines. Uh, Sunday, of course, is introspection. So if you've got questions about why are we doing what we're doing and, and concerns or, or other things like that, the, those are the things that do ask on su- Sunday. You probably don't know that because we don't broadcast it. So anyway, so, um, so, the, uh, so that, those are the things to look at for Sunday. Um, also, a quick reminder that we are looking, if you're interested in being a panelist on a regular basis, go to officehours.global slash panelist and fill out the form and someone will reach out to you and we'll start looking at how you can become part of this panel. Let's jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and we're really excited to have uh, the folks from OWC back. Uh, we have the CEO and founder of OWC, Larry O'Connor. Hey, Larry, can you? Can, how's it How going you doing? There? Glad to be here. Yeah, good, good to have you here. Um, Connor uh, Sterling, uh, senior workflow engineer. Hi, Connor. Hi there. How's it going? Good. And 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 my my old friend who's been on the Final Cut user group, and I've known for many years, uh, Sam Sam Messman. Hey, Sam. Alex, good to see you, man. It's good to see you too. So, um, so anyway, so we're here to talk a little bit about uh, the jellyfish, some new additions and storage. And it's really just an excuse because these are some of the, the, the world experts in storage. I mean, we use a lot of OWC stuff. I've got a lot of hard OWC drives and raids and other things here. Um, and, and, but I think that uh, I know, you know, Sam and I have talked about storage for, I don't know, a decade now, you know, um, you know, and, and Sam used to, used to come on and, but I know that all of us are using a lot of OWC hardware. And so, um, and so this is a real great excuse to, if you've got questions about storage, uh, Thunderbolt, uh, USB-C, the phones, the thing, all the things that they work with. Uh, these are, this is a great, great, uh, think tank, um, to take to, um, to ask. So you have, um, you've got some new things up your sleeve when it comes to the, to the jellyfish. Sam, do you, uh. Well, let me actually just kick this off. I just wanted to say, uh, trip down memory lane. Most people don't know this, but actually, uh, the jellyfish was launched. It was formerly called the share station on the, uh, final cup virtual user group on Alex's show, uh, way back when that was, that yeah. was where this all started. And it was a hilarious story that I don't know that I can it share was, here. It was still putting it together. Like it was like, <laughs> like it was, I think we might've even delayed the show a little bit trying to get it. No. Like, no, it was live. We had to install the red plugin and everyone right. shut everything down and we still had everything in code. And and then midway through the show, Eric Altman crawled in and, and logged everything on. And then I answered a question and had to pop his head down. And then he popped back up and we demoed as if nothing was wrong. And uh, it was it was there. But it's come a long way now to the point where we have a bunch of geniuses working on it. And uh, that's that's the most satisfying thing for me is is being here and watching the development from where it started to where it is now. And uh, it's a full-fledged worldwide uh, shared storage platform that is literally powering creative teams uh, at the highest level all over the world. Yeah, and and I've worked on projects where the gel, where where jellyfish is being used, and it's I don't know, it's like twenty computers connected to it, you know, constantly flowing through that through that whole system. It's it's a really impressive system. Now, have you made some addition? Uh, uh, can you give us an update to where you are now uh, with with the jellyfish? So Connor's gonna gonna walk you through it in a minute, but the the big picture on it is uh, we're moving to all flash basically. So, you know, at NAB this year, uh, we introduced the jellyfish XT, which is, uh, designed for basically all, all bets are off, you know, up to hundred gig ethernet on an all flash environment. And at IBC this year, uh, two new models were introduced, which is the, uh, 
Jellyfish Studio, which is basically the Jellyfish Mobile, but now with SaaS SSDs that are powering it. And, you know, that's going to significantly reduce any latency that you might see. And then the the star of the show, the real breakthrough model is the Jellyfish Nomad, which is uh, powered on all NVMe and can fit in a backpack. It can go anywhere in the world with you. You can take it on a plane, pop it out and go really without limitations. Uh, and and it's really the logical, in my opinion, completion of the Jellyfish lineup where it's collaborative editing anywhere uh, with no IT required. So that's that's what's most exciting is just the, how the technology has impacted the, uh, you know, uh, the workflow and and Connor will take you through the details, but we are, we are now, we started at kind of as kind of a little bit of a hack and we are now, a full-fledged collaborative editing system with with really no limitations. That's awesome. And how does, as you get started, I'm, you're probably going to answer this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it now. Like, so I have a, a small collection, a small stack of the Express 4M2s. Um, so these are the little, that's what I travel with, um, is, is I have the, you know, I, you know, usually like eight terabyte, um, or, or so, or, or 16 terabytes that I can put in my, in my backpack. And I know that I can, um, you know, build up a, a pretty good show in it and it's going to be really fast. How, how does the, 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 the jellyfish version of these, um, you know, what distinguishes it from those, those smaller ones? Yeah, well, I think yeah. the, sorry, go ahead, Sam. No, Connor, oh, <laughs> dive in, Go. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, the Nomad is uh, is really revolutionary in that we actually use OWC's U.2 shuttles uh, as our drives. So inside of each U.2 shuttle are four uh, OWC NVMEs, and that's what we use to create our pool there. So with that, we offer six direct 10 gigabit connections. You can have oh, six people okay. connected to this. And it's the aggregate bandwidth of the system is about 6,000 megabytes per second. So each person gets that full 10 gig connection. Wow. Okay. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, as a small, so it's really more like the one that I'm using is more of a personal one that I'm using there to, to work on stuff where what you're talking about is having a collaborative environment of a couple editors that are all going to be in, in one place. But Connor, I'll let you go ahead and take, take it away and talk a little bit about what the, uh, you know, the overall view of the, of the system. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, jellyfish is, I joined the team actually uh, close to two years ago now. So I've actually been, here through the whole development of the Jellyfish Nomad. And it's been really quite the thing to be a part of. Um, we basically designed it to make sure that it can fit in a case that can fit inside an overhead bin on an airline. Uh, that's actually the thing that we get asked about the most uh, when people were talking about the mobile, which was, can I travel with this? Can I put this on an airline, right? And, you know, it's it's a small system. The mobile was a small system. You're able to pack that up uh, and, you know, pack up the drive, ship it somewhere that you needed it to be. But what folks really wanted was something truly mobile that they could travel internationally with it. Um, and that was all flash, uh, which is becoming more and more the case. And not necessarily because I think people need the, let's call it the speed of flash, but the high IOPS performance. We're dealing with a lot of teams that have image sequences, uh, high bandwidth files, raw codecs, right, that start really benefiting from NVMe in that form factor. I, yeah, we and, don't use any spinning drives anymore. Yeah, you know, I might add on that, uh, it also makes it a lot lighter. Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a dream. I was uh, interacting with it at IBC in Amsterdam this year, and it took everything I had to not kind of take it with me and put it back on a plane back to Toronto with me. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's a very exciting system. A lot of people came by and were kind of amazed by it. It fits in a nano case that is built like a tank. 
um, and that has a strap and you can carry it anywhere you want. Um, but that I think is really an indicator of where the jellyfish is going and kind of what we're offering to teams, right? Is we still are known for being direct attached storage um, or sorry, direct attached network storage, I should say. Uh, you know, you don't need to bring a switch to this. Now, if you did want to use a switch with any of our systems, you're more than welcome to bond those connections into a switch and then add more users to it. Uh, but you don't have to. That's kind of the beauty of it because there's not really a one size fits all workflow approach when it comes to hardware and software. Uh, and that's kind of what our thinking is going forward with all of our uh, devices. And we have a lot of wide range of folks that watch the show. Can you um, talk a little bit about the difference between network attached and direct attached and what are the advantages and disadvantages of, of the different uh, ways of connecting to the drive? Of course. Yeah, I think direct attached storage is what people are most familiar with, right? When we're talking about Thunderbolt and USB-C and our SSDs that you can you know, pick up from OWC, like our Envoys or even uh, RAIDs, like our Thunder Bay and Thunder Bay Flex systems. Um, that is really meant to be a one-to-one -one connection. You are connecting to that, to your machine, to your workstation, and you're working off of that. And you can get tremendous speeds off of that. With network attached storage, you do run into more challenges because you have the same people uh, all connected to one drive, accessing all of their media. And that's where we can enable a lot of collaboration, right? And that's really where you see, I think, the industry going when you look at tools like DaVinci Resolve, Adobe Premiere, obviously Avid has been a collaborative editing system for a really long time. They want to make collaboration for everyone. And what that hardware enables you to do is make it simple, right? The fact that we can directly connect to those, uh, get people up and running, they can access the same media, access the same projects, and they're not having to share projects either via email or past media off on drives and passing around raids and oh where's this asset well, you know where is this logo it's all in one place uh all at the same time ready for everyone to access so how does this work in the cloud like we're not in the cloud but not in the cloud but a distributed team so i've got a team that is um in you know we're all of us are in different places i think so so we're all working on a project how do we use the your hardware to make that all tie together seamlessly well, I think one thing that we always need to be uh, aware of when we're talking about cloud workflows is that you're limited by the speed of your internet. Uh, the public internet isn't great for a lot of people. Some people might have 100 megabytes down. I've got a gigabit here, you know, and it works great for me. But if you're trying to edit, you know, your AK raw footage, right, over the internet, it's just not going to happen. And that's not anybody's fault other than, you know, the internet service provider, right? Uh, given distance, you have to deal with things like latency. And that's not what you're right. expecting when you when you want to edit, and right? Sorry, go one ahead, thing I'll, uh, I'll add to that, too, is, you know, there's a <laughs> there's a big thing that no one really talks about when it comes to remote cloud editing, which is caching. And so even to power something like LucidLink or anything like, or any of the other systems, you're gonna need a very, very high powered cache drive in addition to blazing fast internet to be able to work. So no matter what, you're gonna need to get a high quality NVMe drive. So for instance, our Thunderblade, you know, would solve that problem if you wanted to work with LucidLink. But the the key to any of this, when you're delivering proxies and and or any of that is, what LucidLink is going to do is it's going to cache your workflow. And so it needs a massive amount of cache anywhere from, you know, four terabytes plus on a practical side to really be able to do this at a high level without latency. Because as I think most people on this call know, 
the worst thing you can possibly do is uh, deal with a, a large or, or medium sized project and then perpetually be getting a beach ball or trying to play back and everything's choppy, it's skipping. So what you really need, it's the devil's in the details when it comes to cloud workflow right now. And it's it's evolving rapidly, uh, but in order to do it right, the same way running a, a show like this might be required in order to do it right, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. You've got to have the gear in place and it's an ecosystem of gear. It's it's not as simple as just uh, connecting your computer and saying like, okay, I'm ready to edit collaboratively you know, in the cloud right now, whether that's camera to cloud or anything else, there's a lot that you're gonna need to do and set up and test before uh, you actually sit down and yeah. do it in a mission critical environment. Absolutely, and and I think so, so. What we're looking at here, though, is to have individuals all have some. They have a drive system that is at their computer that is going to be. It's going to be pulling stuff down so they can work on it. But the key is figuring out the check in, check out, right? To, of of how that's going to to work, and is that something that you're managing inside of your system? So one way, there are basically two things that we talk about with remote workflows, right? And, and regarding the Jellyfish. So we do have Jellyfish remote access, so you can access it via VPN, right? Get into the system. But we also have a tool called Media Engine because some of us might know pulling large 8K, 6K raw files over the internet is kind of a pain, right? When you have to have 100 gigabytes, 200 gigabytes, a terabyte, right? What Media Engine does is it actually transcodes those proxies using the Jellyfish and then mm -hmm. makes those available for you to pull over to your system to work locally, right? right. And then you could pull those over to your Thunderbay. You could uh, Thunderbay. You could pull those over to your Thunderblade. Um, what else that we also recommend is uh, using something like a remote desktop, right? Having machines directly connected to a system and using something like jump or teradici or parsec there's a million of them out there uh and having those machines directly connected to the jellyfish so that you don't have to have media leave your server right you're just mm -hmm. allowing folks to remote into the system provide them with their software they can do their work uh and then no media has to be out there in the ether right in the cloud which i think some folks are nervous about and very conscious about right absolutely and and the um and, and do you have, have you built the workflow to work specifically with things like Resolve? I mean, and, and I guess the question is, is that how do you, how does what you're doing interact at all, if, if it does at all, with mm -hmm. what Blackmagic's doing, like the Blackmagic Cloud? Because um, I think a lot of us are kind of swirling around the Blackmagic Cloud of, what, you know, I could be shooting and, and you know, I, I could be shooting from my camera and having it appearing you know, in Resolve, and I could be cutting it, you know, like, and we're trying to figure out how that all looks. How does, how are you viewing that? Yeah, so me personally, I am a Resolve power user. I love DaVinci Resolve. It is one of my favorite pieces of software. See lots of thumbs up on the panel here. Um, I've used DaVinci, a big thumbs down over there. Hey, I understand, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> say, yeah, anyway, yeah, anyway, go ahead. I know, we're about to start a fight here, but that's yeah, okay. Exactly. No, it's, uh, like I said, there's no one workflow that uh, works for everyone, right? And I myself am very interested in what Blackmagic is doing uh, with the cloud. What I'll say right now is because I haven't had a full uh, kind of month to sit down and work with it and kind of test things out with it, we're very interested in camera to cloud and kind of how the jellyfish can support that, right? And being kind of a main point, main repository for folks, because this is my own personal feeling is I don't love things just being explicitly in the cloud. I do like to have them 
locally, whether that's with me or with, you know, inside of a studio on another production. And this comes down to backing up your media, right? Making sure your media is in multiple places. The cloud is, is a great resource, um, but is not the, the ultimate resource, right? You do want to have copies of your data that are yours. Things happen, right? Uh, but I will say Blackmagic's uh, advancements and where they're going with Resolve very much interests me. We do offer um database hosting on the jellyfish so you are able to host your database on the jellyfish you can access it and work collaboratively with that and i realized we kind of just dived into saying talking about the jellyfish but we probably ought to back up for a second and explain totally what it does (laughs) you know so that so the vote you know people understand how how it actually works it's something i'm familiar with so i think i I made the mistake of just immediately diving right into like let's talk about the details here so if we can back up a little bit and explain um uh, what the jellyfish is and, and how it works. Of course. Yeah, for sure. So what the jellyfish is, is it is a shared storage device. So a network attached storage is what a lot of people would call it. Um, you're able to connect uh, to a network switch to enable folks to access the same media as you across you know, locally connected devices. You can also directly connect to it using 10 gigabit ethernet. So we have a range of devices actually of the Jellyfish. And the most recently one is when we were discussing, which is the Jellyfish Nomad, which is our all NVMe server that can kind of go anywhere, right? And, and what's the storage, what are the storage options in the Nomad? Of course, yeah. So we started 16 terabytes, th- uh, 32 terabytes and 64 terabytes. And what are the um, costs for those, just to give people an idea? Um, we do start that at about 12 or 13,000, I believe. Um, I'm also the workflow engineer, so I'm not necessarily the money guy. I will say that. Um, but they are, you know, meant to be a good way to introduce yourself into the jellyfish ecosystem because right. a lot of folks start off with a smaller jellyfish and then eventually they do move to, you know, something like a jellyfish tower, which is our freestanding unit that has 20 drives, SATA, uh, SATA spinning drives, or they move into something like our R24, which I kind of equate to being the Ford F-150 of, you know, network attached storage. It kind of does a bulk of the lift. It it can do multiple things. And that's our rack mounted unit. That's uh, SAS spinning drives. So and, there's 24 and, drives. Sorry, go ahead. And with those 24 spinning drives, are you as are you moving towards moving all of that to solid state? So that is one of our uh, head units of the R24. The one up from that is the Jellyfish XT, which Sam mentioned we introduced to NAB this year. And that is all SAS flash. And so the really cool thing about the Jellyfish XT is we actually have 20 uh, SAS flash drives in the head unit. And then we actually have four drives that are mirrored uh, to act as an accelerator, basically a metadata controller, so that we get super low latency off of those SAS flash drives. Yeah, and I should add in there, you know, from a budget point of view, some workflows or some just the size of the user group can dictate, you know, how much performance you need out of the solution. Just with the XT head unit on an R24, you can you get the benefits of substantial acceleration and high performance without being all flash. So these systems, as we begin to offer all flash solutions, you know, there's also hybridization. So you have capacities that can go into the petabytes while still having at the you know being able to adjust and you know, configure your system for the performance that you need. And one other thing I got to say about the jellyfish, you know, jellyfish makes all this work amazingly simple. You know, you don't need a, a full-time IT team. You're not sitting there kicking the box and making adjustments. I mean, this is built for high availability of NVIDIA workflows. So it's it's not just it's a fast box with NVMe drives. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, um, there's folks on this, a lot of folks on this uh, you know, panel can build a box and then VME and go, hey, I, I've got this speed. 
it's really the sauce is really the the software and the hardware engineering and how it all comes together so that when you do plug six users in, all those users have nonstop full accessibility, full availability of the performance without frame drop, without hiccup, you know, to drive the uh, to drive that workflow. And at IBC, we actually had that Jellyfish Nomad live on demo. I mean, it was powering you know six stations in, in our booth. Yeah, and, and that and that and that's where I've seen it. And when I've seen it in a project, it has been um, quite a few editors. We've got live content coming in. Live, you know, this is at an you know these are at large event you know um you know events co conferences and and you have all that back end being kind of managed in that process and it is something that before jellyfish it was a lot of um a lot of work like yeah months i mean uh, of work no, to, to get to get ready for the conference as opposed to um something that just you just put in and make it work go ahead sam yeah that's that's really the thing right you know that when you to ask anyone on this call, right, whether they would know how to take just a random piece of hardware and within about 20 minutes have six machines connected up to it and ingesting video and being able to edit from it, you know, on the practical level, I, I don't, it's just not really possible, you know, and when you think about the other thing to keep in mind, too, is video is very different than what you might do with a home NAS, right? A lot of people, when they talk about network, network attached storage, they will be like, well, I've got an ass, you know, and it'll work. But then the devil is always in the details when you actually start running 4K, 6K, 8K files collaboratively and people are hitting and, and all that. You're going to start to see beach balls. You're going to start to see latency. And Jellyfish is designed, even our spinning disk models from the ground up where you should be able to share and collaboratively edit video across large teams in a mission critical environment uh, without latency. And, and that is the thing that you know, is between that and the ease of use of setting up is what really makes it different uh, from the ground is it should just be able to get out of the way and you should be able to edit at the speed of thought. And that is the the fundamental problem it solves. When you're, um, I guess, as you go, as you approach this, what are the real challenges? Is there anything you do have to think about inside of the network? So you're putting this together, um, you know, what kind of switches and so on and so forth do you have to start thinking about as you start to bring that collaboration together? Yeah, I think the um, the important thing to realize is like when you are looking at a jellyfish, uh, I'm one of the people that you actually get in touch with and we go through a whole workflow consultation, right? We want to know your workflow in and out, what cameras are shooting, what codecs are shooting, what frame rates are shooting, what does your infrastructure look like? Because we want to make sure we're putting you with the right jellyfish, right? One that will meet the aggregate speed that you need. Uh, that's within your budget, right? Because we're very conscious about that. We don't want to, you know, push you into a system that's hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, unnecessarily, right? But then also, yes, understanding your network, right? Are you running fiber? What kind of switches are you running? Have we, you know, encountered problems with those switches before? What are the gotchas with those certain models? How many workstations are connected? And what are those workstations connected with? Are they 25 gig fiber? Are you looking to go, you know, super high speed over the network with those? These are all questions that we ask as part of the pre-sales process uh, to make sure that we understand what folks are doing. And, and, um, uh, one of the one of the problems that that I have now when I'm when I'm doing edits is my throughput inside of my Mac Studio is very fast, and mm -hmm. I am you know how, is there a way that you can, that I can get that kind of speed for one computer uh, connected to your storage? Because right now I you know I ma I max out on an external storage at about uh, twenty two hundred, where my internal is at about five thousand. Um, is there a way for us to kind of work through that? 
Yeah, I think if I understand the question correctly, I think what our approach is always is kind of what is your workflow, right? Like, why are you why do you need that 2200 megabytes per second? Do you just want that 2200 megabytes per second? Or is I'm the work editing that you're 6K doing? footage uncompressed? You know, like totally, it's, yeah. you know, that's the, that's why I'm doing that. Of course. Yeah. And so with that, you know, recommending that you go to 25 gig, right over fiber and then through a network switch would probably be the way to go. If you need a speeds that are over what a 10 gigabit connection can give you, then that's the way that we would recommend you to do that. You do that. Now, one, uh, one thing I'll mention there, Alex, is, you know, as you talk about those speeds, right, the, the difference, right, between our solid state models is, even if you're going at 1000 megabytes a second, the latency that you're going to get from a jellyfish on the solid state side is going to be identical, right? So what it really comes down to is the lift that you're going to require from your media. So if you need to go above it, it's really about the the pipe, right? So the bandwidth, you have the bandwidth coming out of the, the system, you're going to get 6000 megabytes a second on the nomad at, to aggregate across your devices. But your pipe is typically going to be either a 10 gig or a 25 gig pipe. And then depending on how you optimize that 25 gig pipe, that's going to determine the amount of speed and the lift you have. So what's really important to keep in mind is when you push the space bar, immediacy, it's going to be the same, whether it's 2000, 5000 megabytes a second. That's the advantage of the solid state uh, framework. But uh, in terms of the raw lift, the question is, what is the codec you're using and what is the actual bandwidth that you need to pull to move that data? And that question will then determine the size of the pipe that you need to connect to your machine and how you optimize to to just be able to like, will the data fit in the pipe? But the nice part is no matter what data you're fitting through the pipe, whether it's 1000 megabytes a second, which is a typical 10 gig connection or 5000 megabytes a second, the speed with which it moves through that pipe will be the same basically on a solid state jellyfish. So that's there's there's just a little bit of a nuance between uh, the size of the pipe and the latency, you know, in terms of how everything's going to move. That makes sense. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Absolutely. First one is coming to us from Christian Ortiz in South Florida. And Christian asks, are there any plans to offer direct Thunderbolt connections? Uh, go ahead, Larry. Oh, can't hear you, Larry. Whoops, you're muted. Short answer is yes without going into any uh, significant details, but it's you know, it's certainly on the uh, the roadmap. Now, are, are you, uh, can, is, is Thunderbolt 5 on the, on the horizon? Have you, have you, have, are you yes. thinking about that? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's on the horizon. <laughs> but it's when I say, I guess, it, you know, horizon wise, I mean, don't look for it tomorrow. Don't look for it that I say next quarter. It's, it's, it's on the horizon, but we're still a, a bit away from it. And what are I, the big advantages of Thunderbolt 5 to Thunderbolt 4? In a nutshell, Thunderbolt 5 is going to double our, uh, double our band, a little bit, actually more than double our true bandwidth availability. It goes from PCI Gen 3 to Gen 4. And there's a bigger carve out to support uh, video stream going to uh, connected displays. Right now, if you connect the display into the same port that you have you know, behind a storage device, for example, the performance of that storage device is significantly hampered uh, with anything that's uh, 4K or higher resolution just because of how much bandwidth display takes. With the, uh, the Thunderbolt 5, we're going to have an extra 40 gigabits wow. of actual uh, bandwidth set aside for display so that it won't have to uh, take as much away or potentially anything away from the data side. 
until we get bigger monitors and and more da- and need more data. <laughs> like that's it. Sure, that, that's how. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's, you know, data. I find that uh, hard drives are like bags. You know, and 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 the through is the throughput is that you just no matter how big the bag I buy, I just keep filling it up. Like I just you know you just you just get lazy and fill it all up, and then you have to figure out where to put all that stuff. Uh, one thing, uh, yeah, yeah. One thing I might add to the Thunderbolt Five side of it is like. Right now, you're maxed at about 2,700 megabytes a second. And when you look at some of OWC's NVMe options, right, even the 4M2, uh, it's limited. You could not get the speed out of a 4M2 into uh, a traditional Thunderbolt 3 or Thunderbolt 4 ecosystem. So Thunderbolt 5, you're going to see a lot more speed out of your NVMe devices. But the big thing you're going to see is... Uh, you can have a a RAID. So we make something called the Flex 8, right? Which is a hybrid NVMe and spinning disk storage, uh, also with a PCI uh, bus in there. And when Thunderbolt 5 comes, you're going to see, we're going to start really living in a hybrid world between spinning disk media and NVMe media all living on the same port and people being able to really customize their storage infrastructures uh, for various needs because spinning disk is not going to necessarily go away uh, because you can still, from a cost perspective, you're going to, you still need massive amounts of data. And when you're shooting 8K data, right, that has to live somewhere, you know, so spinning disks are, are great for that. But when you have NVMe coming over the same, you know, pipe, you want the immediacy and being able to work with that and edit at the speed of thought, which is what SSD really provides. So when you have 5,000 megabytes a second to aggregate over multiple Thunderbolt buses, uh, the amount of workflows and the amount of data you can start moving around is astronomical. And this is what's going to be interesting. It's going to really remove a lot of limitations in terms of how much data you can move on a set. It's interesting when you're I'd talking. Argue, I, I would honestly make the argument, you know, today you know, we sustain 25 to 2800 megs a second, uh, things like the Flex 8 and the Thunderblade. That's massive amounts of uh, performance. I mean, it's, it's things move really quick, but you know, certainly for, I understand for, uh, you know, doing dailies, for making duplications and backups, you know, cutting the time there will be a big benefit. You know, the other thing that Thunderbolt 5, as it comes along, I mean, we've, we've got a, a bit of time before we're going to see Thunderbolt 5 come into the mainstream for a number of different reasons, engineering wise. And you know, we are planning to be in, well, we're already well positioned to be in the forefront there, but you know, one comment, you know, for sure right now we're limited, not because of the drives, we're limited mostly in these arrays, we're limited by the uh, performance of Thunderbolt. You know, we'll be, with Thunder, well, by the time Thunderbolt 5 comes out, that's gonna kind of probably equalize, but we'll be back to where we can really get the, we'll be able to offer the full performance of what some of these devices have already inside the, you know ready the role latency won't change i mean things like that will be uh, identical but as sam's noted they will have all that extra bandwidth uh, again especially for things where you're doing backup or large data transfers you know suddenly you see things uh, really pick up the pace hard drives today you know even with eight drives in a in a bus you know there's eight drives don't max out what uh, thunderbolt uh, three and four do today but for NVMe, I mean, anything that's NVMe based, you know, you, you're going to see a nice pickup when you need to move massive amounts of data you know, to and yeah. from uh, such yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have been doing this long enough that I, I, I can remember we built my first, we had to recapture, actually, this is a the Sony F950, which is um, the, the one of the Star Wars cameras. And mm-hmm. um, we would to capture 444 uncompressed, it was 225 megabytes <laughs> second and we had to we had two x-rays that we had um in 2005 when we bought the camera 
that we needed to capture from each ca one x-ray per camera to get up to the speed that we needed just barely um, to, to capture at a full, you know, uncompressed, uh, uncompressed video. So I, I definitely I think about that every once in a while when I'm complaining about the fact that I can't have my six, 6K um, you know, uh, black magic raw <laughs> playing back at the same time, you know, while I'm trying to cut. And the reason that, by the way, the reason that, that I've done that is because, um, in, in those cases is because the proxy system wasn't working as well in resolve as I'd like it to. And so I would do the edits and then I would re reconnect them in, I'd go to proxy, edit it, come out of proxy and the edits weren't the same. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, so that's why I, um, uh, that's why I, I needed to use it uncompressed. And I found that I had to move for this specific project, move everything onto my internal drive, um, to, to get it to, you know, otherwise it wouldn't play back. You know, you're kind of, you get into this and we're now getting to a point where some of these files are getting so big, you know, I'm, I'm regularly shooting 8k for a bunch of things that I do. And, and I'm, um, like we have throughput problems on the cameras because I'm, uh, a bunch of stuff that I do is, is, uh, 8k 120. And so at 8k 120, we're, you know, like the, it's at five to one compression. It's, it's at a, at a gig a second, you know, like it's just, you know, just, and, and it's, and that's because the throughput of the camera is limited to it right now. So, so the, um, so anyway, so, so, you know, that these are the speed becomes definitely something that, um, you know, that, that we think about a lot. It's really interesting when you're talking about hybrid drives. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I think is interesting is this concept of, and I don't know this is where, if this is where you're going. So I'm just, but thinking about this idea of online, nearline, offline, and having that be something that is, there's just a big bucket and there's a bunch of drives that are kind of connected to that. And some of them are slow and some of them are really fast and some of them are medium fast and you're making requests for what you need when you need it. And you're not thinking about where that is. Like, you know, you're, there's a, you know, it's backed up and there can be backups, but I was just really thinking about the, that concept of, there can be slow footage out there. I think about that a little bit because I use a lot of frame IO where I have lots of stuff in archive and then I just pull, you know, and I know that it's going to take three hours to come back up, you know, or four hours to come back up, but I don't, but it's better than taking it off and now having to figure out where I put it. <laughs> so it's just, you know, I'd rather pay a little bit of rent to just have it there, um, you know, so that I know that I can pull it back up, especially for clients who come back and ask for something that they did a year ago. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 I got that. And, and you know, I can have that for you tomorrow. And and that's a, it's a pretty powerful thing to do. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, I mean, we live in a hybrid world now, right? And, you know, when you talk about hybrid, it's it's always sometimes never, right? And, you know, people work in an all, always sometimes never environment, even when you're going into the office, right? You're sometimes in the office, or you're you're working with people who are never in the office, or you're working with people who are always in the office, right? So the question is, how are you going to share media, not just with others, but even with yourself? Like, how are you going to move that data? And how is your computer setup going to be either connected or cloned between the home and in the office. And then even on top of that, when you think about hybrid just from your desktop, right? You know, having your your project files, your renders, uh, and all of the small little database files, having those work through NVMe is going to be endlessly better than having those on a spinning disk grade. So as you start to design your system, you know, you got to think about cost 
Uh, and, and then you've got to think about where do you need performance, right? And so your high resolution media, your database files, your project files, where you're rendering to having that all live on NVMe makes a ton of sense, but then you can get away with regular large amounts of 4k or 6k media sitting on a large raid drive and having those connected and, and where are you going to get your dollar for dollar value? And then also which media do you want to live in a collaborative environment? And then also layer in the cloud and how you want to work remotely. These are the questions of our times when, frankly, the machine side of things no longer becomes relevant from a pure performance standpoint. Now it's how is your media going to perform with your machine and your setup, not just on your own system, but collaboratively in the office and then through the cloud remotely with others on other sites. Absolutely. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Up next, what does the Jellyfish interface look like and what options are present? Go ahead, Connor. Yeah, is it cool if I share my screen? I can yeah, actually absolutely. show you the interface. Yeah, 100%. let's do it. Let's see if I can do that here. Can you see my screen? Yes. Perfect. So this is Jellyfish Manager that I have on the left side of the screen here. So this is just our overall system view. You can see we've got actually two pools of storage here. One is our primary pool. So I've got 120 terabyte uh, Jellyfish Tower that's actually right beside me running right now. Um, and then we actually have a cache pool inside of that uh, Jellyfish as well of NVMe media. So if we're working with things like image sequences or cache files or anything like that, we can point that to there. The primary pool is mainly used for where your media would go. Uh, if you want to create a new share, all you have to do is go to the shares tab, hit create a new SMB share or NFS if you would like, give it a name, select which pool you'd like it to go to, and you can do things like enable a quota. So just say the share can only grow to two terabytes, uh, encrypt it, and also even enable a recycle bin so that if you get a you know, click happy editor who starts deleting things, uh, you can recover things very quickly. Uh, creating users, super easy all you have to do is just again hit that plus sign and you can create new users and give them access to media engine which we talked a bit about earlier in the call uh let's give them a password also force their password change so you can give them a default password enable them to set their own password later and then you can also create groups and this really comes in handy when you're trying to manage your permissions of your jellyfish so if i need to manage the permissions of a share all i have to do is click edit go in and I can enable read write access to different users. I can add these users as well. So I'll add Larry here. Larry's got permissions here, but I'm only going to give Larry uh, read permissions. He's a uh, he's a bit click happy. I don't need him to uh, start writing things to the jellyfish there. And one of the things we actually have uh, is a cloud integrations as well. So over here, I've got Backblaze set up. So if I wanted to back up my jellyfish to the cloud, all I'd have to do is select my bucket that I've set up here. And what'll pop up is a really simple scheduler. So when I'm trying to schedule that uh, backup, I can choose whether I want to back up just the entire share, a specific folder, or a specific file. And I can also schedule that out as well and, and determine the resources that the jellyfish uses for that. What I think is the most important thing for people when they're looking at a Jellyfish is the app that they'll actually interact with the most. And that's actually Jellyfish Connect, which lives up in the toolbar here. So what this does is it enables me to see the shares that I have access to. So I've logged in through Jellyfish Connect and I can do things like mount my library share, my project share. I can even mount another share and it'll pop up on my desktop here. 
It also allows me to do things like access manager and then also access media engine. So when you first install Connect and you first connect to the Jellyfish, Connect will go through and it'll do things like enable 10 gig speeds on your Ethernet connection, uh, enable jumbo frames so you get the most performance out of your 10 gig connection. So um, once I log into Media Engine here, you'll be able to see that I can see all my media that's actually on the Jellyfish here. So I've got Office Hours demo here. I've got inside of a folder, I've got a bunch of ProRes files here. If I wanted to, I can select those, hit export files, and it'll allow me to create proxies right here. So this is what we were talking about earlier with our remote users, right? They'll be able to generate those proxies, put them in a specific location for us, and then we can go grab those and pull them you know, over the internet. Or if we would like to, we can use those to edit locally. If I don't want to take up uh, usage on my machine, I can let the jellyfish do that as well. Now, is it is it reconnecting those proxies as well or is it just simply delivering those and then you need to reconnect them with the software that you're using so it'll deliver those proxies for you your software will handle that so if you're in resolve you can point it to the proxies there uh, you know right. premiere same deal uh but this gives you a lot of flexibility right like if you're two editors that are connected to a jellyfish and you both have a deadline to hit and you just can't take up resources by rendering your 8k or 6k uncompressed footage this will take care of that for you that's great yeah. uh, next question Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas asked, I use a mini stack STX with my M2 Pro Mac Mini, and I love it. Would the Jellyfish Mobile be an equivalent class of device? Go ahead, Larry. Oh, can't hear you, Larry. Try to fix that. The, the mini stack STX is an, an exceptional direct attach solution with both NVMe and HDD stores. So you get the fast NVMe, which Right now, limited, by the way, by Thunderbolt to about 800 megs a second. And then you have a hard drive in there up to 20 terabytes a day for, you know, moving your footage to after edit. The any of the Jellyfish systems is really going to be, I mean, it, again, it's that's a shared storage solution where it, that allows that multi-user collaboration. It supports, you know, 10G or depending upon the system, even 25G uh, interface you know, to a Mac, which you could do through a Helios with a 25G card. It's kind of the, the Jellyfish is really a level up for a, an individual user. I mean, for direct test, you know, a one man band sort of setup. I mean, the, the mini stack is fantastic for what you're doing. If you're moving into a collaborative workspace where you want to have multiple users and have that solution, the performance of the Jellyfish is actually going to be a little bit higher. And of course, you have the that whole collaborative opportunity. Next question. Serge Blondin here on the panel, Montreal, Canada. What kind of backup solution can I use to back up my jellyfish? How would you? Yeah. Uh, put, yeah go ahead. Hey, hey, Serge uh, from Montreal. Hi from Toronto. Um, so yeah, in terms of backup solutions for you know the jellyfish, um, OWC has a product called Argus that you know would backup files as well to um, you know any other NAS device you have, something like a Jupiter from OWC. Uh, but you can also bring your own, you know, P5 ArcAware is a very popular backup software solution. Um, and then as you saw earlier in my screen share there, we can also back up to the cloud as well. And you can schedule those backups. So the cloud integrations that the Jellyfish supports directly are AWS, Wasabi, Backblaze, and Azure. Next question. Offering, go, go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead, Larry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we're offering, I mean, we offer integrated backup solutions with Jupyter and also our B24 Jellyfish. But you're not, as Connor's noted, you're not limited to our solutions. I mean, you can pretty much back up to any network attached or a cloud, a major cloud solution. Next question. 
Next one's mine, actually, from here in San Diego. Uh, so many of us are looking at backup stuff. Uh, many of us have closets of aging spinning drives that we're going to migrate to some form of solid-state storage, and they're getting pretty old in my case. What should we be considering for storage tech going forward? What are the hot technologies, and what should we be looking at? Go ahead, Sam. So uh, a lot of it depends on what you want to do. Hilariously, I, I'm very familiar with that drive pyramid. We used to call it the drive pyramid that people would build in their in their office. And, you know, that was a lot of reasons what the jellyfish was designed to solve in the first place for collaborative editing. So if you are in a multi-editor environment, you know, you want to start with the jellyfish. If you uh, are basically... the what the beauty about OWC is the ecosystem and they make a drive that fits into every aspect of what people want to do. So if you need the world's best portable drive, that's largely indestructible, you want to get the Envoy Pro FX uh, that largely operates at the Thunderbolt line speed and uh, basically is the best portable drive you can buy. Uh, from there, if you need something that's semi portable, but also can go into a much larger capacity level, uh, you want to look at the Thunderbolt blade, uh, which is basically um, probably the best Thunderbolt connected drive in the universe. Uh, there's nothing better than that drive. Uh, and it is basically for it's basically a 4M2 in a enclosure that uh, you connect. And this is something for high end professionals who have a lot of media that they need to move around. Uh, then we have the Thunderbase for RAID storage. Uh, Thunderbase 4 is probably the best solution for well, actually, let's start with the Gemini, which is a two-drive solution uh, that is for your average DIY creator. It is basically, it also is drive dock functionality. So if you have a lot of devices you want to connect and you need a large amount of media for basically lower resolution media, but also up to 4K, but maybe transfer is not as important to you. You want to do that. Thunder Bay 4, if you need a little bit more bandwidth, it is probably the, the mid-range for your average uh photo musician or video editor and then thunder bay 8 for the high end and then thunder bay flex 8 if you need to mix spinning disc and nvme together next question next one comes to us from charles klein in new york city thank you for joining office hours today i own multiple thunderblade drives incredible rock solid performance from on set to post-production any updates coming to the thunderblade family Go ahead, Larry. Hey, thanks for being our, our customer on that and glad you're enjoying the Thunderblaze. I mean, that's what we built them for, for everything from editing to that LNGS capture, you know, that is a daily shipment. I mean, that's what that solution has been built for. And we're always taking feedback from users in the field and you know that that product certainly will continue to evolve. And we do have some updates in the future, mainly focused around a little bit more performance and, and higher uh, rate five capacity. So do be on the, uh, the, the lookout for you know, some updates to Thunderblade, you know, probably early uh, 2024. That being said, it doesn't obsolete the current Thunderblade in any way, shape, or form, and interoperability with your power supplies, all that other, uh, and any of the ecosystem, any of the, the current workflow you have will, will continue with the new as well as uh, with the existing Thunderblades you have. What are, what are the big conferences that you, or expos that you guys go to? What, what are the ones that you consider the, the ones that really are the middle of your, of your market? That a question for me? And yeah, yeah, I, I'll ask you. Yeah, I, 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 or or Sam, but the uh, just that just a, is are there ones that you um, that you focus the most on, or the ones that you have the largest presence in? Sure, NAB and IBC would be our, our two biggest shows. 
at this point going forward. We we do a bunch of we do we try to do as many regional shows focused on this, like Cinegear and such. We'll be at right. CES. CES, we have a, a really small presence. That's more a meeting presence. It's not really yeah. the right show uh, for this kind of solution uh, lineup anymore. Right. But, uh, quite frankly, we're always trying to, to be where our customers uh, want us to be. Absolutely. Uh, next question. Alexander Knight back in from Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. What is the ideal product I should be looking for as a lone editor so I can have the fastest local storage solution for editing up to 4K and resolve? I don't have a $10,000 US plus budget. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, I'd actually recommend if capacity is not a major issue for you, the uh, Envoy FX uh, is probably the best drive you can get for that. If you need more capacity, it's going to cost a little bit more money. You go with the Thunderblade. And if you want something that's fast, that's spinning disk with a lot of media, either the Thunder Bay 4 or the Thunder Bay 8, if you're looking to be cost conscious and you need a lot of capacity. Next question. Steve Uroff, Madison, Wisconsin. Are accounts and permissions exclusively local in the jellyfish? Can it source accounts from LDAP, Active Directory, and so forth? Good, Connor. Yeah, so uh, good question for sure. Uh, we do have Active Directory support. Um, we do have a little bit of a consultation process because Active Directory, each Active Directory instance is kind of a special flower, uh, you know, depending on how old the Active Directory is, whether you have a bunch of, you know, trees and complicated structure to it, or if it's, you know, a smaller one uh, for a small business or something like that, much easier to integrate into, but you can bring your own Active Directory to it. And that's, again, part of the nice thing about the Jellyfish. You can choose to use our local users and permissions, or you can bring your own via Active Directory. Next question. Serge Blondenbeck from Montreal, when used with a switch on a network, can it use an external user's management system for permissions? For sure, yeah. So the kind of the same question, you know, we do integrate with Active Directory. And so I hope I answered your question, Serge. Um, uh, you know, we do support that. Next question. Mickey Makachor from the Philippines, from Manila. Are the file systems used for each pool selectable? Is BTRFS and ZFS supported? Go ahead, Connor. Thank you. Hey, Mickey. Uh, great question. Yeah. So Jellyfish is based on ZFS. So we use uh, Z2 for certain most of our, our systems. Uh, something like the Jellyfish Nomad would run on something like Z1. Uh, but you can... We can have a discussion about that depending on, you know, which configuration is right for you and your application. So, but ZFS is the short answer. And what are the advantages of ZFS? So ZFS uh, uses layers of caching. So, you know, for a lot of this conversation, we've talked about uh, low latency and how important that is for, for editors, right? And that's what ZFS really enables for folks. So with the Jellyfish R24, uh, you have 24 SAS spinning drives. You also have an SSD as a level two cache. And then we have 512 gigabytes of RAM on top of that. So that stores the most frequently used and the most recently used files to serve up to your editors. So you're not just uh, relying on the performance of the disk drives it's the whole system working together that's great uh, next question uh, matt x is coming in from vancouver on the qr code system today and he says is the jellyfish storage still recommended uh, a recommended storage platform for post-production go ahead connor Absolutely. That's what the Jellyfish was made for. It was made by post-production professionals and it's made for post-production professionals. We have a lot of installations uh, in studios, actually one recently in Montreal, Serge, uh, that, you know, they're running uh, Jellyfish XT using all SAS SSDs for finishing and then an R24 for all their offline editing uh, in 4K HD. So lots of post-production houses use Jellyfish and choose Jellyfish. 
Next question. Uh, it's from me. In, in the pre-show, we were talking about the fact that Apple's top-end Thunderbolt cables are quite expensive. I think it was looking at 125 bucks or something like that. And one of the things that surprised me, um, I think um, Ars Technica had a, a, an X-ray of one of them. And there's a tremendous amount of technology buried in that connector. Do you see those costs dropping over time? Or are, is there going to be more competition at the top end of the high-end cables? Right, go ahead, Larry. Yeah, you know, we go up to two meters now. Obviously, Apple goes you know, a bit longer, you know, from a performance point of view. I mean, we're there in performance. I mean, the, the underlying technology is not different. Apple gets to sometimes you know, push the envelope and go a little bit further earlier than everybody else. But the, the short answer is yes, you know, the, you will, we'll have cables in that length. And as far as performance, I mean, there is no uh, there is no performance uh, difference or, or detriment with the, uh, with the current Thunderbolt cables versus Apple. Apple's not doing anything different there in terms of what they're providing with bandwidth and, and uh, ultimately with power delivery. Today's to all today's uh, Thunderbolt cables that we're putting out, for example, now support the 240 watt and everything is 40 gigabits. Next year will be at 80 uh, and 120 gigabits with Thunderbolt 5 cables. So it's, I guess the transfer question is, yes, there'll be competition, but in terms of cost dropping, you know, what goes into these in terms, I mean, you got to go back, I mean, or look back a decade or 15 years you know, just the thought of doing even what Thunder, the first generation of Thunderbolt did over copper, what we can do over networking uh, you know, and take for granted over copper is, is really amazing and incredible. There's a lot that goes into these, these solutions technologically to support that kind of bandwidth without latency, without uh, air issues, without instability. So I don't see, I don't expect we're going to see these cables necessarily get less expensive, but there will be, let's just say, less expensive competition for uh, to, to Apple on, on the longer length uh, cable options. I I, uh, I did I did ask someone about how complicated that was at a company that might be working on some of these cables, and and they said just just remember that in 1970 that the end of that cable would be a room, <laughs> like, like <laughs> a whole room, like a whole room would be that the end of that that the the, the processing power of the end of the at the end of your your Thunderbolt cable would be an entire room. So just 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 keep that in mind. Uh, You're literally doing quantum level you know, yeah. error correction. Funnel weight. I mean, it's it's nuts. The you know, what goes into making that cable do all the things it does without anybody having to think about it. Yeah, and the RS Technica is a great. Well, when you when you you think of that little cable and then you see their their um, their scan of it, and it's just an immense amount of of circuitry that's that's going into making that actually work. It's it's really amazing. Uh, next question. Blew me away. Yeah. Douglas Carmichael, what underlying OS runs on the Jellyfish uh, units? Can the user access that OS, and who is responsible for security patches? Go ahead, Connor. Yeah, so we run a Linux backend uh, on the Jellyfish. Um, if you're looking for security patches, uh, OWC will push those out to you via software update, so that'll be able to update via your manager. Um, you can access that backend OS, but, um, you know, you break it and, you know, we do have support that comes with the jellyfish and that's what they're there to help you with. Uh, but no harm in giving them a call beforehand and talking through what you <laughs> want to do. And is this a good idea? Um, but that's the short answer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of moving parts there. Uh, yes. ne next question. I have to customize yeah. that kernel. <laughs> yeah, yes. I would not recommend that. Um, next question. Serge Blonde back from Montreal again. What kind of file system do you support? Go ahead, Connor. Hey, Serge. Yeah. Uh, so it, Jellyfish is based off of ZFS. Uh, and the final question for the hour. Christian Ortiz in South Florida. Are there any plans for iSCSI target support? 
I hadn't heard that term for a long time. I know, it, SCSI. I, I have to remember it. <laughs> I SCSI. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess I can answer that. I mean, I, I, I would say I don't think so, largely because uh, it's just we don't have a lot of users using it or asking for it. And and it's so complicated. Uh, we dealt with iSCSI a long time ago. And in order to do that elegantly and support it properly, uh, it requires uh, quite a bit of management. And, and quite frankly, um, moving to an all ethernet based delivery system is what the jellyfish was designed for. So it's not solving a problem for our typical user. Larry? And I'd add to that for customers that need iSCSI, you know, Jupiter, uh, Callisto, and, and Core Systems still offer uh, some iSCSI support. But this, as Sam said, I mean, it's a very different approach to you know, solving this these kinds of workflow problems. Connor, not applicable, definitely not applicable the way Jellyfish is designed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Connor, Larry, and Sam, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you coming and joining us on the show. Um, it's, uh, it's always good to have you guys here. Uh, we're, we're big fans. So, uh, and, and, uh, frequent, uh, frequent customers. So, so anyway, it's really, really great to have all of you here. Um, well, when you have something new coming up, let us know. We'll make sure to bring you back on. Um, and, uh, thanks to uh, all the panelists who made this show happen. Um, we can't do this without you. Great first hour and, and, uh, part of the second hour. Uh, thank you to the producers who are asking all these questions, both in the QR code, as well as, um, inside of Makana. We really appreciate all of your questions. The show gets really short if you don't ask a lot of them. So, so thank you very much for throwing those questions in. Uh, and thanks to the incredible team on the back end. This team, this is not your standard Zoom show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it's not your standard Zoom show. We have, of course, people developing the pipeline that makes this actually happen. Uh, we have people who are cutting this show from somewhere in the world uh, every day. Uh, and then we also have an incredible team that's managing who's going to be on and, and whether, whether they're ready and all those other bits and pieces. And we really appreciate everybody's contribution to making that actually happen. Uh, we traveled uh, 90,000 miles today answering all these questions in the Tlaloc Traversal. Uh, and that is 145,000 kilometers. And that is 717 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours. That was great. I forgot, Sam. I forgot that, 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 that you, you, you built that up during our show. I, I, remember, I now remember it. I think, I think the trauma went yeah. into, into my subconscious you know so definitely mine as well i was i was not sure whether i should but now it's a good story because actually no one no one on the other side noticed um but yeah, yeah don't with a prototype product just don't install anything that requires a restart once it's up and and let your uh your tech go to go to, who's Cell reception Hashtag compiled on the air uh, it was really? perfect storm um yeah yeah it was uh, great Good, good memory there. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Thanks for your products, Larry. They're saving my butt every yeah. week. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> well, you're seeing you know, part of the team here. I mean, this is a team, a great team that makes these solutions you know, 